We sing hallelujah this morning to the great I am, the Lord God of heaven and earth. We pray to you by the name of your son, Jesus. We are your church, O Lord. Be with us this morning. Let the Holy Spirit reign in this place this morning, reign in our hearts, and may, you, may he perfect the words of your servant as I proclaim the word of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, and be seated. And now open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, and let's do it again. Romans chapter 6. And you're thinking, I don't believe he's going to go back to verse 1. But let's read 14 verses. This is, a, this is really a turning point in the whole of this doctrinal statement. This is one of the great doctrinal statements of our faith. And it gets tedious, but I tell you, friends, it is worth the tedium to know the truth of God's word and to parse it, rightly dividing the word of truth, Paul said to Timothy. Be a good soldier in Christ, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we're going to try to do that this morning. We've got some applications to make, some things to live by, some praises to give God for all of his blessings. And so let's turn now to the first 14 verses of Romans chapter 6 where the Apostle Paul writes to a church he had not visited. He knew some people from other times and other places that were there. He names them all in the end. Sorry, that's sort of a a spoiler alert, but uh, in the end he does name some people that he knows. But he hasn't been at the church, so he writes this very detailed doctrinal statement to make sure this uh, iteration or this local body of uh, of the early church is worshiping rightly and and are right in their thoughts about the nature and purposes of Almighty God. And so he goes into this. That's what doctrine is, friends. Doctrine are the conclusions we reach, the principles that we practice based on the full counsel of God. So Paul writes to them, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For we, for rather he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. 
for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, open to us the deep things of God this morning that you, your apostle has penned anciently under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who is God, and I pray he is with us this morning as we proclaim this, your holy word. Amen. You know, it's, <laughs> it's very disheartening sometimes when I get up here and I read a passage like that, and I've been working on it all week, and I realize, oh, there's so much more there that I just didn't get into. And I feel like just preaching it right then and there as I'm saying it. Maybe I should. But let's take it a step by step, and we'll go back in. I'm going to begin at verse 5 this morning, because a lot of this was review. But Paul writes, for if, if, friends, conditional clause, right? If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. In other words, if you didn't die with Christ, you're not getting resurrected. Very simply, right? Before we get caught up, though, in the parsing of the doctrine of the passage, let's take a moment to celebrate the fact of the declaration of Paul the Apostle as one of the great assurances of our salvation. We also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. We were baptized into his death. Friends, I labored over that last week. I watched the tape. I worked hard on that one. We're baptized. We were immersed in his death, in the heavenlies by the Holy Spirit. And then we symbolized it in the pond, right? We were immersed. That was our burial. And we rose up. The Lord said the same so many other times that I think we should... Consider these other assurances. Jesus himself said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be there also. Friends, he's not only saving us, He's giving us what we have. We are joint heirs with the only begotten Son. He inherits it all, and by faith, we are joint heirs with him in all that he has inherited. That's the resurrection, friends. It isn't just we get to live again in these drudgery lives on earth here, you know, with all this global warming keeping us down and everything all the time. But Paul speaks of the same promise to the saints, alive and dead. He says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Friends, that's why we come to church on Sunday, so we won't be ignorant. So we will be apprised of these things. So somebody will be prepared to go through the Word of God and teach it to us, to enlighten our minds to the reality and our hearts to the hope that is in Christ Jesus. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. You have friends that fell asleep in Christ? They're alive, friends. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Friends, we're not like those who have no hope. We have hope in Christ Jesus. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Your dead Christian relatives are alive in Christ. He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we 
who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall be with the Lord. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's a statement of our eternity. Where I am, you will be also. And what does he say about this doctrine? He's clarifying the resurrection doctrine for the Thessalonian church here. He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Friends, the truth is comforting to the saints. Lloyd-Jones always said, God's word never hurts God's people. It can be harsh, and we can wish it didn't say some things that it says, but it never hurts God's people. It's always there for comfort for training, for understanding, for assurance of our salvation, friends. We're joined to Christ. So don't despise the doctrines of Scripture just because they get tedious and tiresome. They're there to comfort us. And we may approach the day of our death, friends, as the day of our resurrection. It's really a glorious thing for the believer to come to his last day and his last breath and know that he's absent from the body and present with the Lord. And the body's still there. Spirit is with God, caught up together with him in the air. It's just an awesome reality. And it's by faith that we know this. But like Abraham, we know that he who promised is also able to perform. That's what we got to keep in mind. And that I'll use as the application at the end of the message this morning. So we approach the day of our death as the day of our resurrection. When we depart this life, our spirits go to God to await the glorious day when our bodies will join us again. Yeah, we're going to have these bodies again, but he's going to fix them up. The great rehab center in the sky. He's going to take your body and glorify it. And he's going to make it something it never was before. And I'm hoping mine's sort of close to what I was when I was about 35 or 40. I think that would be a good time. I'm praying for that. But um, so we approach the day of our death as the day of of our life. And we'll live forever as perfect humanity in our new and improved glorious bodies. New and improved. How many things today say new and improved on them? Breakfast cereal, toothpaste, right? Everything's new and improved. We're going to be new and improved. You may recall from last week's remarks that some of the great voices of church history bemoaned the fact that the glorious doctrine of our union with Christ is neglected in the churches today because the facts of it are sometimes tedious, sometimes mysterious. And so we neglect the teaching of it. But we're going to herald it in these verses because this is what the apostle is heralding. You died with Christ, you live with Christ. It's that simple. But these doctrines are given to add comfort to our remaining years this side of eternity. Friends, we have to stay here as long as the Lord has planned. And there is purpose in it. And some of us discover what that purpose is, and some of us don't discover till we get there. But God has a purpose, and it will be fulfilled. You may not even realize God's fulfilling his purpose in your life, but he is fulfilling it in your life. So we want to be careful about neglecting the great truths of our assurance, of our union with Christ. Or we, too, may be guilty of neglecting these great truths and giving in to debilitating doubts and fears. Do you ever have debilitating doubts and fears? Yeah, I see a lot of heads shaking up and down. We have debilitating doubts and fears sometimes and wonderings. We wonder as to the strength of the promise of God. Where are you, Lord, sometimes we feel? I'm going to tell you, we are not, we are not prey to those feelings. We, we, are, we can be victorious over them. And I'm going to show you how this morning. Let me just say that the apostle 
is intent on our living our lives victoriously and not in some kind of carnal stupor as to our own personal deliverance. Gee, I wonder if I'll really be saved by faith. I have faith in Christ. I wonder if, I, if I'll really be there. I wonder if he's really forgiven me for my sins. I wonder if I'm really justified before him. Friends, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. And I'm not going to tear that apart for you this morning, but I'm going to let it just marinate a bit. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Friends, faith has substance. The things you hope for have substance and you hope someday to be there. But faith is already the fulfilling of that, you see. It's the evidence of things not seen. And so when we're troubled by the trials that beset us in this life, know that you're bound to Christ by faith. You're joined with him in his trials, his sufferings, his death, his burial. That's what Paul said. You've been baptized, which means you've been immersed in the life of Christ by faith. You've come up out of the water. You were resurrected and cleansed into a new existence. And so it's by faith that you and me are also delivered from our trials. What seems a long wait is not far off, friends. Our hope is near at hand, nearer than we think. As we get older, we get to say that kind of stuff. Life is short. Young guy can't say, life is short. What does he know? Let's go back to where this discussion of Paul originated in the text. Remember the whole discussion of our union with Christ arose because of the gospel proclamation where Paul anticipates that someone's going to get the wrong idea from this proclamation, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Well, then shall I sin that grace may abound? That's the question that he anticipates someone might ask. Now, let me say this. I just, I just looked at this this week, and I said, that's apostolic sarcasm. Friends, if I know anything, I know sarcasm when I see it. Shall we sin that grace may abound? You know, when you're, when you're preaching the gospel to someone or you're presenting Christ to him, you say, you know, your works don't matter. What you do doesn't matter. All the sin you did, it doesn't matter. And then you present faith in Christ as a, as a new birth, and they say, well, shall I just keep sinning then if it doesn't matter? Let me tell you something. They're scoffing at the truth, and they know it. This is the answer that Paul anticipates that the scoffer and the fool will ask, shall I sin that grace may abound? That's a sort of passive-aggressive shaking of the fist at God. This is the answer that Paul anticipates from the scoffer and the fool. It's the answer of the doubter and the naysayer. It's a pretense that tries to belittle our gospel as an invitation to sin, which of course it's not. Good works could not bring us to righteousness before God. Good works can never be good enough to merit God's approval. And so what does the scoffer do? He derides by saying, Well, let's jettison every attempt at good works. Let's do evil works and commit evil works. Let's continue in sin that grace may abound. But Paul answers this foolishness by demonstrating that the scoffer is asking the wrong question. Shall I sin that grace may abound is the wrong question. So when that comes up in your evangelism, say to the hearer, you've not been paying very close attention. 
I thought I made myself clear. What we have established thus far is that you've been justified by Christ's death and your sins are paid for. You've been delivered from sin by his blood, not by your works, but by his works and your faith in them. You've died to Adam. Original sin has no hold on your life. What's original sin? It's the sin that determined when you were born you had to die. You know, when you were born, when you were conceived, we like to say, oh, life's just beginning, but it's also beginning to end. Every moment of life is a march toward death because of the sin we inherited from Adam and acted out on our own. Sin passed to all men, Paul wrote, because all men sinned, remember. And so your sins have been paid for, not by your works, but by, your, but by Christ's work and your faith in them. You died to Adam. Original sin is dead to you. You no longer share a spiritual union with dead Adam. You share a spiritual union with a living Christ. And so the question that should be posed is this. Not shall we sin that grace may abound, but how shall we who died to sin live it in any longer? That was a curse living in sin. It was a bondage. You are freed from it now. How shall we who died to sin live live in it any longer? That's the question the apostle says you should have asked. You've got a new life now. Get new works. The passage speaks of our union with Christ. We're united together with him, the verse reads. We may recall from last week's study that there's a union between Christ and those who have found faith in Christ. We're bound to him, he said in John 15, as the branch to the vine. The branch receives life from the vine. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remember? Apart from me, you can do nothing. You cut yourself off from the vine, you begin to die. You graft yourself into the vine, you begin to live. And so he gives the illustration of the vine and the branches of our union with Christ. How about the body of Christ? The church is the body, Christ is the head. We're one body. We're not a headless body. We're not a bodiless head, right? So we're in union with Christ, the head. He also gives the the building example. You're living stones being built up, a great temple. You're stones in the temple. Christ is the chief cornerstone, but we're all stones in the great temple. These are all metaphors, of course, but that's the way the Scripture teaches us this doctrine, through these metaphors. There's one more. The two shall become one flesh. The married, the, the marriage example. The husband and the wife are joined together and are now one flesh. I speak of Christ in the church, he says, remember? He goes right from marriage, almost interchangeably, to the the church's relationship to Christ. And this is the essential thing. Remember this truth as you're tempted to believe in other gods. When you're tempted to believe in yourself, which is a lesser god, or believe in your own moral resources, you know, we just think we're so good. Remember, remember your union with Christ when you think of choosing a higher power. Have you ever heard of that? Choose a higher power. I, I, I tell you, I never quite understood the concept of choosing a higher power. By definition, that power must be less than you because you're its creator and not the other way around. Your higher power should get down and worship you. Remember that our faith may only be as strong as the object of our faith. So what are you going to choose as the object of your faith? Some temporal human initiative or intention. Our faith is only as strong as the object of our faith. So when we're tempted to choose a higher power, cut out the middleman and go straight to the highest power in the universe. And you'll have chosen well. Remember Joshua? 
He challenged all of Israel, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, then choose another God. That's what he said to the scoffer. Choose for yourselves this day who you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that they served on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. And remember, young men, you are the heads of your families and in your house, if you can choose who's going to be worshipped there. You're the head of your house. As for me and my house, Joshua said, he didn't say, we're going to choose a God, but I'm going to go consult with my wife first, and I'll be right back and tell you who that God's going to be. He declared who he's going to be. Remember Moses. Moses said, likewise, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. And listen what he says, that you may love the Lord your God. Show me another God that people worship that they love. It's not about love. Other religions, other idolatrous pagan rituals are not about loving the God they're worshiping. We love God. It's about loving God. It's about a God that if you knew him, you could do nothing but love him. That you may love the Lord your God. Faith worketh by love, the Bible says. Moses knew that. He said that you may obey his voice. If you love me, John said, quoting Christ, you'll obey my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And once again, the first example we get of that is our fathers. If you love your father, you'll obey his commandments. And when you're old enough to not have to, you can say, I have my own relationship with God. I have my own path. And a man shall leave his mother and father. But until then, if you love me, obey my commandments. That's, that's how we show love as Christians. We show love to God by obeying his commandments. That you may obey his voice, Moses said. That you may cling to him. For he's your life and the length of your days. That you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. And so we who have found faith have become like the object of our faith. We chose a good object of our faith, Christ himself. We've become like him in some crucial ways. And we're not like him in some other crucial ways, which I want to parse this morning. We've been baptized, friends. We've been immersed in the love and mercy and sacrifice and sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. We're baptized in his blood. And what does that mean? It means that we've been immersed in some of the crucial aspect of his work on the cross and his emergence from the grave. We're immersed in his suffering, we're immersed in his death, and we're immersed in his life. Now, I took great pains last week to clarify the apostle's baptism illustration. The apostle used it to illustrate new life. The believer, friends, is dead and buried just as Christ was dead and buried. The man of faith receives the new birth. What we call, Jesus said to Nicodemus, was the born-again experience. We receive it by faith in Christ. In our spiritual immersion in the Holy Spirit, we've been crucified and dead and buried. And by our spiritual emergence from the waters of baptism, we've been risen with Christ. Now, he's not talking about the actual waters. You can baptize people all day long and not get them saved. They have to, that is an operation that has to be done by Christ with the Spirit of God. No one should come to baptism that haven't already been baptized in the Spirit. 
And so the gospel asserts that just as Christ has risen from the grave, so will everyone who believes in him. The gospel of Christ is the testimony of our union with Christ. And Paul is the most ardent spokesman of this truth. And that's what Romans 6 is about. We suffered with him. We died with him. We were buried with him. And we shall surely be resurrected with him as well. And though the whole spectrum of likenesses to him seems like a mystical process. Pastor, how did I die with him? How was I buried with Christ? I don't understand. It's mystical. It's proclaimed by the apostles as the basis for our hope in eternal life. Now, I have to warn you at the outset that this, like the other doctrines we talked about, is a dangerous doctrine. Doctrine's a dangerous thing. We can take it too far. It's dangerous because it stresses the miraculous ways in which the believer exists now in the likeness of the one in whom he believes. We're like Christ. And this is stated throughout the New Testament. Listen to these examples from Colossians. For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. Those, that little word in, we're in Christ. It's an amazing thing. It's interchangeable with our salvation. It's interchangeable with justification. We're in Christ. We're not in Adam. You're complete in him. And he is the head of all principality and power. Paul says likewise again to, uh, or rather Peter says, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. All throughout the New Testament, we're, we're told of this union with Christ that we had. We're partakers of his nature. Paul wrote to Timothy. This is a faithful saying, he says. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. There's your creed. There's the gospel. If you died with him, you shall also live with him. If you endure, or rather if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. He cannot deny himself. That's an awesome little creed of the infant church. So perhaps the danger of which I spoke is becoming evident. Do you see what's happening? You see, we have to receive the promise of God that we who are baptized, that is, immersed in the love of Christ, are united with him in spirit. But at the same time, we have to revel in our likeness to Christ. We have to also respect the uniqueness of Christ, another doctrine. We've become like him, but we've not become him. Now, I stress this because this is where some great denominations have gone astray. They think when we partake of the divine nature, we become gods. See what I'm saying? We've become like him. We've not become him. I would in fact, go so far as to say that that would be a fatal step and an unprofitable progression. It's the step taken by another. Do you remember who took that step? Let me read it to you from Isaiah, where God said, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I'll be like the Most High. And then the Lord spoke to this abominable pride, you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. 
No, we become like him, but he remains unique in his deity. We don't become gods. We become perfect specimens of, of glorified humanity. So we share a blessed union with Christ. But there are some attributes of his divinity that are his alone, and they'll never be ours. And there are whole denominations within the professing churches that take the promise all the way to deity, an aspect of Jesus Christ that we'll never attain to. Friends, the whole Mormon religion is based on the fact that you're all gods. I don't know if you knew that. It's also based on the false view that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. Are you aware of this? I mean, you can take a doctrine to its logical extreme, and you've taken it too far. So we're not going to become gods. We're going to become glorified human beings. Christ is also a glorified human being, but he's God. There's the difference, right? He retains his deity. We retain our glorified humanity. That's the great difference. That's why Paul could say, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So Paul wrote this, the law is good if you use it lawfully, and so the same may be said of any truth of Scripture. And don't be deceived, friends. Error leads to error, and heresy to more heresy. That's how it works. And that's why we remain, we remain committed to teaching the precepts of God as they're given us, even when they become tedious and burdensome. And so he said to the elders of Ephesus, and I love this section of Acts. Acts 20 has to be one of my most beloved sections of Scripture. Go back and read it later, and I think you'll see the, just the wonderful personal love and relationship that Paul had with the elders of the churches that he appointed. And so to the elders of Ephesus, he said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which... The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Friends, if you're an elder in the church, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And it comes with some authority. And we need to respect and receive that authority in this life. And he's building up these elders. But he's, he's warning them as well. Take heed to yourselves and, and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. With a purchased possession of Christ, the churches, and the currency was his blood. And he goes on, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Do you think Paul was really worried that wolves would come in? He's talking about people. He's talking about false teachers. Those are the wolves, right? Not sparing the flock, he said. Once I depart, And he said, also, from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. In other words, it's worth parsing through the particulars of the doctrines of Christ. It's worth getting them right. It's a defense against evil. So as to the danger of taking our union with Christ too far, Lloyd-Jones wrote this. He said, our death and resurrection are not identical with the Lord's. Everything that happened to him, of course, was unique because of who he was and because he's the eternal son of God. Everything that happened to him, therefore, has a specialty and a uniqueness, or rather a speciality and a uniqueness about it that can never be true of us. So the apostle uses the term likeness 
Lloyd-Jones says, to help us keep that distinction in our mind. Our death and resurrection are in the likeness of his, but they are not identical with it. And so we have to parse this difference. We're in union with Christ, but we're not identical with Christ. We preserve proper distinctions. Friends, doctrine, it's a simple word, didache. It's, it's sometimes translated teaching. It's just another word for truth. It's the root word for teaching. It's the purpose of the church. Paul said this to Timothy, preach the word. Remember this? Preach the word in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Right? When you preach the gospel, you have to preach the doctrine. Now, the King James says doctrine, and some of the other verses say teaching. Both words are acceptable. Didache can be translated both ways. It's the purpose of the church to proclaim the word of God and to do this teaching. It's the calling of the elders, who are the teachers. And so we're concerned with the exegesis. What's exegesis? It's presenting intent through context. That's my definition. Other definitions were longer, so I made one up. Presenting the intent of the writers through the context of what they wrote. Remember that Christ came, what? In the likeness of sinful flesh, not in sinful flesh. When he uses the word likeness, he's giving us a distance. We're born into the likeness of Christ, not the power of Christ. We partake of the advantages of Christ, not the attributes of Christ. We don't become God. We'll never be a begotten son. We are the adopted sons and daughters of God. He's the only begotten son. You see, we preserve the great uniqueness even though we're in union with him. Having said all that, however, it's not our habit to shy away from the full power of the truth. I've warned against going overboard, but I want us to take in the full power of the doctrine. And so as long as we keep scriptural boundaries in our understanding, we can revel in our union with him. And so we should not become those who doubt the real extent of our union with Christ. That, too, would be an unfortunate consequence of a partial understanding. Even though our likeness to him is not always apparent, we may trust in the reality of the new birth. Like we said earlier, you know, I don't always feel so saved. I don't always feel so certain of my salvation. Even though our likeness to him is not always apparent, we can trust in the reality of the new verse, of the new birth, rather. Our flesh is like a disguise, friends. You know, when I got saved, I was kind of amazed. I, I, I went out there and I got saved. I came to the Lord. The Holy Spirit came on me. And I went out to see my old friends and they, they didn't notice. I looked just the same. They didn't notice anything happened. I said, no, you don't understand. I'm, I'm born again. Hey, you look the same to me. You know, our flesh is kind of a disguise, right? No one thought, boy, look what happened to him. He's like Moses, got to put the veil in front of his face. That didn't happen to me. I was the same old guy. Our flesh is a disguise. No one knows you're a Christian by looking at you, but by what you do and what you say and how you act. And so we should not become those who doubt the real extent of our union with Christ. That, too, would be unfortunate. Even though our likeness to him is not always apparent, we can trust in the reality of our new birth, even though our flesh becomes this disguise. We appear the same outwardly after regeneration, and it's by our actions only that we may be observed to be changed. Did you ever notice that all the great things in life are invisible? Have you ever noticed that? Show me love. It's invisible. Show me justice. It's an invisible concept. How about faith? I want to see some faith. Put it right here. You can't see it. All the great things in life are invisible. 
but they're inside us because they're spiritual and they're known by the actions that they prompt. Do you have agape love in you? It's known by the actions that you do, by the words that you speak. That's how the invisible becomes visible because we appear the same outwardly after regeneration. This is a disguise. I don't really look like this, praise God. <laughs> uh, it's by our speech, our habits, our commitments, our devotion to God that our union with Christ becomes visible. Yet even that is only for a time. There's going to come a time when it becomes visible. John wrote about it. He takes the whole union a step further by saying, though we may not seem to be uh, in the present to be like Christ, all of these inconsistencies will be wiped away in the twinkling of an eye. He says when we're again in his presence, a miraculous change will take place. We won't have to convince anymore that, anyone anymore that we're in Christ. He said, beloved, now you're children of God. Now you're united to Christ, right? But it's not yet been revealed the full extent of what you shall be. But we know that when he's revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When he's revealed, we'll be like him. Though in some essential ways we're like him now, it will be made physically manifest when we see him. And it's the belief in this transformation that purifies the saint in the here and now. We're not all we can be in Christ, but due to our belief in the promise of purity, we purify ourselves. And so John writes this, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, Christ, is pure. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Make no mistake, it's our correct doctrine that purifies us for his use. Verse 6, he said this, knowing that our old man was crucified with him. The old man, by the way, is not your father. My boys call me the old man. They didn't crucify me. Praise God. They crucified, hopefully, their old man, and I crucified my old man, or Christ crucified him for us. Knowing that our old man was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Friends, let me save you some suspense here. You're always going to be a slave to something. Do you ever notice how the sinner thinks he's free? Well, I don't want to be in the church. It's all a bunch of thou shalt nots. I can't do this. I can't do that. And he's out there thinking he's free. He doesn't know that we, are the, we have freedom and he doesn't. He can't see that. He'll see it eventually because sin, your sin will always find you out, right? And you'll always find out that your sin has led you down a path of bondage. So you're either in bondage to sin or you're in bondage to Christ. And Paul was not ashamed to call himself the slave of Christ, the bondservant of God, right? Same thing. So no suspense here, friends. You're, you're going to be a slave to something, either to sin and to death or to grace and to life. We're not free agents. Friends, we have free will, but it's not absolute, right? There's certain things our nature won't let us do. Our free will is, is bound up by our nature. There's certain things we can't do, right? Mm -hmm. There's no freelancers in the kingdom of God. The person of faith is no longer the slave of sin, but he's not averse to claim that he's a slave of Christ. Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Why would we still obey the old crucified sinner that we once were? The old crucified sinner's dead. Why are we going to still act like him? How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You notice, though, that, you, you, that you're free to sin if you want to? It's implied. It's implied. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Don't let it reign in your mortal bodies. In other words, it's still out there, and it's still calling you. The, the, the difference is it can't command you anymore. 
Now, I have to appeal to a grammatical point here. I got to pretend to be a linguistic scholar, but Paul uses the aorist tense. You familiar with the aorist tense? It's used a lot in scripture. It's not used a lot in the English language, but in the Greek it is. And with reference to the death of our old Adamic nature, the aorist tense is of a verb refers to a distinctive final act which has definitely taken place in the past. It's not an ongoing process. It's a distinctive act that's been done and finished. And he uses a specific tense. If our being crucified to Christ was an ongoing process, he would have used a different tense. You understand me? So it's, very, it's something we can't pick up in the English unless we're pointed to it, all right? It's not a process underway. It's a thing established by a past action. That's what Paul has been showing us about the sovereignty of God in all these six chapters. You're justified by Christ, not by your choosing him, but by him choosing you. You're justified by him. He did the work. We don't do the work. And it's the same here. You're crucified with Christ. You're buried with him by something that he did to you. You understand the difference? Therefore now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the great statement of of Romans 8.1. If he intended to speak of the death of our old man as a process, he would have used the imperfect tense, which is another tense, which signifies an ongoing process that began in the past and is going on. You understand? He didn't choose that tense. Rather, he says with finality in the past tense that our old man was crucified with Christ in a single act once for all. Now I'm aware that in other places he uses the language of the old man and he doesn't use the aorist tense. He speaks of the putting away of the old man. You know what I'm talking about? About the putting away of the sin nature as though it's a process that's underway. Well, there's a reason he speaks that way there, and the context reveals it. That's not the way it is spoken of here. It's a thing accomplished by the death of Christ. When Christ died, we died with him by faith. That's the whole basis of his gospel argument here. The death of Adam is not in us, rather, is not a thing that we strive to accomplish. You're not striving to be crucified. You've been crucified by faith. It's part of the finished work of Christ. That's why he may say in the next verse, For he who has died has been freed from sin. He didn't say, he who's starting to die will eventually be freed from sin. That's not the language at all. The Greek is a very uh, exact language. It's It's a great language to express the gospel. To the Ephesians, he wrote this. Put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, and be renewed. As an ongoing process, right? To the Colossians, he said, do not lie to one another. You see, you have the ability to lie to one another if you want to. Right? He's saying, don't do it. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his deeds. Since you have put off the old man. So he's speaking in a different way here. Uh, this putting off is seen here as a thing that we do for ourselves. And he said to the Galatians, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, in order to reconcile the differences of those statements with this in the book of Romans concerning the death or the putting off of our old sin nature, we have to appeal strictly to the context, all right? Paul in Romans has been teaching for several chapters on all that Christ accomplished for us and what his sacrifice has done to us, not what we're able to do for ourselves. He is not teaching sanctification here, which is an ongoing process, right? He's teaching justification, which happened at the cross. 
It's an action that God takes upon the sinner because the sinner could not do it for himself. Now, friends, we do take part in our sanctification. We do put off the old works as part of our sanctification. But as justification, we take no part. It's done. It's complete. It's finished in Christ. In these other places, the apostles' teaching on sanctification or the ongoing process of choosing right actions and impulses over wrong ones. Yet in every example, the apostle asserts our freedom to choose. And so in the other texts, he's urging the saints to put off the lingering characteristics of that old crucified man. Don't fall back into those works by choice. The new man has the choice to strive. The old man could strive night and day and not achieve what Christ achieved for him. That's why he never urges the believer to crucify the old man. He's been crucified already at the cross of Christ, and that's the first benefit of our, un- of our union with Christ, is that he killed the old Adamic nature in us. The old man that we were, that we inherited for Adam, is now dead and buried. And then he says this, reckon yourselves. Sounds like an application, doesn't it? Now you do something. You're already dead, so reckon yourselves dead. In other words, Christ crucified your old nature, so consider yourself dead to your old nature. You see where he's going? Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign, rather, in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. So here's our application, friends. Reckon yourself. That is, consider yourself. This is the thing that we do. We're dead to sin and we're alive to God. It's finished. But we're called to consider ourselves dead to sin because we are dead to sin. We're dead to sin, but we're not blind to it. You see, that's the problem, friends. We're still here. We're removed from the penalty of sin. We're removed from the power of sin, but we still are immersed in the presence of sin. It's all around us. It's calling us. And we're used to answering the call, you see. So we have power over it, but we're not deaf to its call. We're dead to it, but we're not blind to it. It has no power over us, and so we should consider ourselves dead to its calling. Reckon yourselves dead. Now you do the work of the crucified person, you see. There's the application. It has no power to reign over you, so don't let it reign over you. Friends, I'm going to tell you, when we sin, it's our fault. When we sin, we choose to sin. Because he said right here, if you have faith in Christ, it has no power over you. Sin can't make you sin. It can't make you obey. In Christ, you can choose to obey or not to obey, but not in sin. It has no power over you, so don't let it reign over you. We are empowered over sin. Verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you. Do you believe it? It's the word of God. It still has the power to call you, but not the power to command you. It's a dead thing. It's crying out for life. You can almost picture Satan saying, don't save anyone else. I'm losing constituents. Right? They won't vote for me anymore. Don't give sin the slightest hope of a breath of life. Reckon yourselves dead to it. There's your application. You are dead to it, so act like you're dead to it, is what he's saying. Now, it might feel as though you don't have the power over it. Now, I want to get into this thing about feelings. We all have them. And they can control us. But the Christian should not be controlled by his feelings. His feelings should be controlled by his faith. It may seem like you're still under its power. And I don't belittle this, friends. And I don't 
ridicule that instinct. I have it myself. It seems like you're under its power and that the power is still very much alive in you. I can assure you it's dead. You're crucified with Christ by faith. I can also assure you that the word of God, or with the word of God rather, that your feelings are not to be trusted. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Proverbs 3, 4, 5, right? (laughs) 3, 5, and 6, sorry. Um, I can assure you with the word of God that your feelings are not to be trusted. You're going to say, how are you going to do that, Pastor? Well, I'm going to show you. You may not feel victorious over sin right now, over death. You may not even be certain about your salvation. But if you died with Christ, you're going to live with Christ. It's not something that your choosing or your feelings change. You may not feel in control of your choices. There may be times when you may not even feel saved. You may not see yourselves as free from sin and alive to God. But the Bible declares that you are. You're dead to sin, you're alive to God. The whole power of sin and the devil is to fool you and delude you into trusting your own human instincts over the promises of God. Friends, do you really think a bad mood can keep you out of heaven? Do you think a trying temptation can keep you out of heaven? You're dead to it. So don't let it call you with power. Reckon the call as as from a dead thing. Just an old annoying memory. And I would say to you at this time, remember Abraham. Now, Abraham's our example of faith. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What was Abraham's name? It was Abram, right? It was Abram. It meant, oh, high father. That's what Abram meant, oh, high father. Where are my kids if I'm the high father? His name was father. Can you imagine the ridicule? If he went around trusting in what people saw in him. He wasn't a father. Then God named him Abraham, father of a multitude. And still, no kids. How am I this father of a multitude? He stood him on the seashore and said, your descendants will be like the grains of sand. And he says, I don't even have one. He didn't trust in what he saw. He considered him who made the promise and that he was able to perform it. That's what you do in those times. There are times when we feel spiritually weak and alienated from God. You ever feel that way? Whenever I feel that way, I realize, boy, I haven't really just gone out. And I I mean, I go out for hours to pray. I walk down the road. I come here, and I might be here for hours, and I'll go up the rows. Because the rows to me, because we're Baptists, we always sit in the same place and make it easy on the pastor when he's praying. Because I go down, I know Diane's right there. Pray for Diane. and I know Brenda's over there, you know. I still think of Sandy over there, even though she's not there lately. When we feel spiritually weak, even alienated from God, the promises seem far off. The triumph of Christ on the cross seems vague and uncertain. Think of Abraham in those times. Remember the defining attribute of his faith? It was not how he felt. It was not what God said that, it was rather, it was what God said that mattered. It was not what Abraham felt or thought or his history. And so we read this, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. Now, it means dead metaphorically. You do understand that, right? He, of course, was alive. And it said, since he was about 100 years old, and then it says, and he didn't consider the deadness of Sarah's womb, who was 90 years old. So here's this 100-year-old guy with a 90-year-old wife. He's called father of a multitude, and he has no kids. 
He did not waver at the promise of God. He had every reason to feel as though God was wrong this one time. He did not waver at the promise of God because that would be unbelief. He was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. He didn't let his feelings convince him. Your feelings will be fickle. They'll go in and out of righteousness. They'll go in and out of joy and depression. That's the hard thing about life. It's such a roller coaster, right? And we think, oh, God is good. People say, God is good. And I, I always think, things are going good for him right now. Wait till next week. You know what I mean? I always wonder, because God is good, and he'll be good next week too, but you might not say it next week. When Abraham stood under the stars and was told his descendants would outnumber them, you may be quite certain that at 100 years old and childless, he wasn't feeling it, right? In fact, if I'm 66. If God came to me now and said, I'll make you father of a multitude, I would hope that would mean through the progeny of my three sons <laughs> and not through me and Karen. We've had enough. It's not about his feelings. He didn't consider his own body or his own feelings or his own flesh or his own instincts, his own fears. He didn't consider those. Rather, he was, and we read from the scriptures, strengthened in faith, Romans chapter 4, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Your faith shouldn't go with your feelings. Go back to your faith. Think of Abraham in those wavering times, in those tempting times. Abraham felt the temptation, you remember. We, we may. But that doesn't keep him out of heaven. That's already established. But live a victorious life. Don't fall to it. You have the power not to. And so he stood under the stars and told his children without, without number them. Now, when you stand under the stars in Canaan or in, the, in Ur of the Chaldees, Right? There isn't a lot of street lights. You know, there's not a lot of traffic. There's no light. If you ever stood in a desert under the stars, it is a different experience than what you see when you go out around here. That's what he saw in this vast... I mean, the stars are like plastered throughout the sky, like a mass. You can't even tell the different dots. There's so many. And he said, my children will be that many. Only the man of faith, regardless of his personal feelings and assessments, has the God-given power to reckon himself dead to sin. I'm telling you from the word of God, you are dead to sin. The old sinner is crucified. He's not there. The new saint is still a practiced sinner, and he'll fall from time to time. But reckon yourselves, consider yourselves dead to sin. If you believe in the Christ of Scripture, then this is your reality. Despite your doubts and depressions, you're alive to God. The promise doesn't change because you change, and your feelings change. But the person of faith has the power to bring his feelings in line with the promise. For he that promised is able to perform. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, help us, O Lord, with the power of your Spirit to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Dead to sin and its call and its temptations and alive to God with his righteousness and his blessings and his promise of eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.